Now as we wait together upon God for his guidance and his spirit, I would like to center our thoughts on a familiar passage in Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, at the beginning. Romans chapter 5, at the beginning. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope. Now in this passage, hope, you will see, is mentioned twice, but in an altogether different context. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God, by whom we have access by faith, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then tribulations also, tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. The two passages would seem to describe not only two different situations, but experiences that are contradictory, mutually incompatible. Can it be then that we arrive at the Christian hope by two altogether different roads? Then you will see that in each case hope is uh, mentioned here as a fruition of three very different processes. It is a goal you reach on the one hand by justification, peace, access, and on the other, by tribulation, patience, experience. Is it the same hope the Apostle speaks of? Is there any real contradiction? Or are there indeed two roads we can travel to a good hope by grace? No, I think not. It is all the highway of salvation, the royal road, the king's highway. It is, I think, the transport that is different. We are familiar with varying modes of uh, tra transport, giving us varied degrees of expedition and of comfort for our travel. Well, I think we have two differing modes of transport on the royal road to Christian hope. We have in the first passage uh, the doctrinal road, the doctrinal approach which faith uses. And the second uh, passage, we have the practical approach which experience has forced us to take. Now I do think, and I submit to you, 
that not only do they lead to the same goal, but they have an intimate bearing on one another. This play and interplay of faith upon life and upon life and of life upon faith is a very real thing to our hearts today. And I am going to try, with the help of God, uh, to unravel these two uh, modes of preaching a well-grounded and a firmly established hope in Jesus Christ. And let us take then the first four steps given us here. Justification, peace, access by faith, and then rejoicing in hope. Then we will take the other four steps given, tribulation, patience, experience, hope. These are virtually four milestones on the highway of salvation. The first four steps. First of all, there is our position the starting place, being justified by faith. <coughs> Justification, as you know, is a matter of relationship. Sin has put us wrong with God, and justification puts us right with God. And until we are put right with God, life cannot begin on the Christian level. Until we are put right with God, there can be no saving or gracious communications between God and our souls. So justification, a change of position and relationship, is the starting place of the Christian life. But justification, you will notice, is not a non-related act that stands alone and apart from other divine happenings. It is presented here as the result of something that went before, therefore being justified. And the therefore takes you back to what happened and is related in verses 24 and 25 of the preceding chapter. Jesus was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. There you see, justification is related to our Lord Jesus Christ. And justification is utterly meaningless if you leave Christ out. Nay, justification is impossible. It is immoral. It is unjustifiable if Christ is left out. And so the apostle mentions two factors that underlie our justification. The one is that Christ was delivered for our offenses. And the second, that he was raised again for our justification. There you see, first of all, 
the Lord Jesus Christ linking himself with us in our offensiveness. He identified himself with our criminality. And when he so identified himself, he came under law with us. The law took its course with regard to him. And he was delivered for our offenses. Handed over so that the full penalty of our criminality might be experienced by him. That is the first great act that led to our justification. The gracious identification of the Lord Jesus with us when he was willing to be numbered with the transgressor. When he willingly took our offensiveness upon himself and bore our sins in his own consciousness on the tree. But then you will see another factor that he was raised again. The debt was liquidated. Full satisfaction was given. And God handed over to us, as it were, the receipt that the debt was paid. It was when he raised his son again from the dead. That was the receipt bearing the sign manual, the signature of God. In the miracle of the resurrection, you've got God's declaration that the debt has been fully met, the criminality has been expunged, the sin has been put away, and now, by faith, we are linked to the one who died and rose. And as he shared our criminality and our offensiveness, we share his deliverance and his justification. And so it is that Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, is the pivot on which our justification swings. It's a foundation on which we attain a new standing before our God. Now, the second step in our journey towards a good hope is a possession. First position, then possession. For when your position is put right, and not till then, you are in the line of receiving. God gives and you receive. And this is the great possession that comes to you through your standing being put right with God. We have peace with God through Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. That is to say, it is a God-made and a God-given of peace. It is a peace of reconciliation. And reconciliation, need I tell you, has its home in heaven. It is divinely wrought. It is a reconciliation of which God himself is the author and the finisher. 
And here it is called peace. Elsewhere it is called the peace of God. And we are told that we have it. The revised version, by using a slightly different rendering, translated, let us have. Now that is not good enough. The Lord Jesus Christ has given us a heritage of reconciliation and peace and we have it. And he is now ministering to us this peace that he wrought for us. It is mediated to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And through him you and I are put into personal possession of the peace of God. By him you are lifted into its calm and into its power and into its radiance. It is not our peace. It is not based on our circumstances, on our moods or on our fortunes. If so, it would be a varying and a fluctuating peace indeed. It is the peace of God and it passeth all our understanding. It transcends all our intelligence and all our calculations and all our surmises and all our fortunes. It is God's own transcendent peace and we are asked to enter it through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this as our eternal unchanging possession. And the third thing we have on the way to good hope is privilege, our privilege. I'm sorry for the alliteration, it really was not intended. That it just fell out like that, privilege. Now, as a believer, put right with God, you have as your eternal heritage the reconciliation and the peace of God. It, you cannot be alienated from it. But then you have privileges that you are invited to enjoy. And of all the great and glorious privileges that have come to you because of your new relationship to God in Christ, there is one great one, the outstanding one perhaps mentioned here. It is your new standing in grace. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Oh, what a wonderful privilege it is to be standing now in grace. How blessedly different it is. Remember when you were standing on merit, on good conduct, on personal endeavor, on obedience to the law in your own strength. What a precarious foothold you had. What a, what a difficult standing. But how changed. You are now standing in grace. It is not do now, it is done. It is not a try, it is trust. It is not give, it is take. 
Everything has been refreshed and transformed. And all your relationships to God are now conditioned and suffused by his grace. And you have access to that standing always through Jesus Christ. Through him you can claim access. On his righteousness you stand. And so in all your dealings with God, you take up your standing on grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have not claimed that privilege, you are indeed a half-hearted, dispirited, undelivered soul. What a deliverance it is now when we have stood so long on our own merit to find the eternal rock of Jesus' righteousness beneath us and our standing holy in grace. That's our privilege. And the last step in this journey is prospect. You see, grace gives you an outlook and here it is, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What a wonderful outlook you have as you take your standing in grace. You see many things and understand many things that you never saw or understood before, for grace is a wonderful interpreter. But best of all, you get a vision of the glory of God. Grace is a wonderful introduction to glory. One of the old Scottish covenanters used to put it that grace is young glory. Grace is glory in its infancy. Grace is the break of a glorious day. A day that shall shine to its noonday splendor. And so you realize that grace has called you into eternal glory. But you hope in that glory with a hope that is really a foretaste of the glory that is to be because I read here that you rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's the hope of glory that brings the foretaste of glory down and the song of glory awakens in your heart. The music of glory stirs within your souls. You have not only a foregleam of the glory but a foretaste of its blessedness. Christ in you is an experience of glory that makes the hope a foretaste of heaven begun. So you see, that is the royal road. The road, let us say, of faith. The road of believing. The road outlined to us in the written word. The road by which faith possesses 
its possessions in Christ. From our possession, we go into possession. From our possessions, we enter into our privileges. And uh, as we enjoy our privileges, we realize that the best is yet to be. We are prospects of a brighter and a more glorious inheritance to come. But how does the other road square with this? For we must admit that Paul immediately pulls us as if it were down to a dusty and a rough and a hard way. For he goes on to say, we glory in tribulations also knowing an experience of ours knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. Now let us look at these milestones on what seems to be a different, a lower and a more toilsome road. It begins with tribulation. Now the word tribulation here really means testing. Testing. Testing by trial. Is there anybody here who can say that his Christian life began in a terrible storm of testing? Immediately you made choice of the Lord Jesus Christ. The clouds gathered, the storm broke, and you're, you were tempest-tossed for days and weeks in your home, in your office, in all your relationships. The strain was put on you at once and you felt storm stay. That is not at all unique. You remember when Abram long ago became God's pilgrim? and traveled to a land of promise. Through, on a toilsome road, he reached Canaan at last. True, he had delayed obedience on the way, but into Canaan he came. And the record that greets us is strange in the extreme. And there was a famine then in the land. What? A famine? In the land of Canaan, Abram met with no famines in Arabicaldes. There was plenty and luxury and despair. But when he entered into God's land, he was thrust into the heart of a famine. God has strange ways of testing. What does it mean? It means this that he has to prove to you that the justification that brought you into a new relationship to himself will stand every test, that the lifeline established between you and your God will take every strain. He's proving to your complete confirmation and satisfaction that no trial on earth will ever sever you from his grace 
or will ever change the blessed relationship between you and him. You remember that is virtually what our Lord said to Simon. Simon, Simon, he said, Satan has decided to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Now Satan's sifting is a terrific thing because when Satan sifts, it is to take away the living grain and to leave only the shaft, the chaff, the shell, the mere husk behind. And uh, Simon was to be sifted in this malicious way. And our Lord gave him a promise. I have prayed for thee, not that thou wouldst escape the sifting, not even that thou shouldst not fall, but that thy faith fail not, that the lifeline between me and you would not be severed, that when you shall fall, and mind you, our Lord didn't tell him there and then he was to fall, but he did tell him that when he was at, on his back at the feet of the devil, there would still be a link between him and his Lord that the devil could not sever. His faith in Jesus would not fail him. And so God puts the new life often, often under a very severe test to prove to ourselves that the lifeline between us and him will take every strain and will outlast every tribulation. Testing. But you will see that the next milestone on this somber road is <coughs> patience. It should be really perseverance. The grace of carrying on. Now you will see that that follows from the testing. God has taught you to carry on and persevere in his strength. It is a, a marvelous attainment of the grace of God that a solely tried believer should be able at Job of old to sit amidst the wreckage of what he held dear and say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's the grace of carrying on. And how does that grace of carrying on, how does that patience grip a Christian heart? It's because he has peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that peace is being ministered to him in the hour of his most desperate need. And the peace of God takes possession, and as we heard here already, garrisons, takes control, armed control, armed control of heart and mind, and that gives them a patience that will defy the storms of circumstances or the tribulations of the world, the flesh and the devil. We don't always remember that when H.G. Spafford wrote that touching hymn we have just sung, it was during a time of poignant bereavement and a 
terrible tragedy. He was a man of considerable financial interest in New York. And on this occasion, his wife and only daughter had gone on a voyage to Europe. And he had to stay in New York to attend to his business interests. One morning, a message came through to him from New York that the bottom had gone out of the business market and the particular line in which its interest lay had completely collapsed. And there he found himself practically penniless, shorn of all that he had in the world. But worse was to follow. A cable arrived that the ship on which his wife and daughter had sailed to Europe had been wrecked. His wife had been drowned at sea, lost at sea, and his daughter was landed in Europe, bereft of everything, and she sent a cable uh, to her father asking what she should do. And there that man of God, with a wreckage of all he held dear, wrote about him, sat down and wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whate'er my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Friend, what supernatural power could enable a man in such circumstances to say that? I'll tell you, the peace of God which passeth all understanding. Patience persevering. And the third is experience. Now experience is subjective experience here. That is experience that comes from personal knowledge. What we might call experimental knowledge of the facts and circumstances. Now it says that after the grace of perseverance we enter into a definite, assured state of mind and heart based on personal knowledge of the all-sufficiency of the grace of God. That's experience. It is a certainty based on our own personal experience that the grace of God is sufficient to bear us up and to carry us through. But how did that experience become ours? Don't you remember that we have access through the Lord Jesus Christ into this grace wherein we stand? And the Lord Jesus Christ is giving us access at that hour of need and ministering his grace to us to sustain us and to assure us and to give us a deep and shaken confidence that the grace of God will bear us up and will carry us through. He has made it real to us in our experience in that hour. <laughs> and last, there is hope. Ah, then we realize 
that the grace of God links us to the God of grace and that the promises of grace cover the road to journey's end and as far as I can see and heart can feel there is a promise of God lo I am with you all the way we believe in the sufficiency of grace to our journey's end and so we have an established hope that the grace of God will abound towards us until we reach on and see him face to face and thank him for the love that sought us for the blood that bought us and for the grace that sustained us all the way what does it mean? it just means this that what you learned through faith by the teaching of the Holy Spirit has become real in your daily and only experience you are tested by the hardest test of all the test of real sore difficult living and now you came to the conclusion that it works it works what faith has revealed to your heart experience has worked into your soul and all you can say now is I thank God he revealed to me by spirit the way I trod it and it works it works he has made good to me all that faith ever claimed in the name and by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ it is mine it is mine as my personal possession and experience forever and ever and so the Christian whichever way he treads has a good hope through grace which shall not be put to shame for the love of God is being shed abroad in his heart through the Holy Ghost given to him. And everyone who makes contact with a Christian must surely make contact with the love of God shed abroad in his nature.